0: That's ChumbaCasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. VGW proof. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to the Advisory Opinions Podcast. This is David French with Sarah Isker. And we're going to cover some really interesting stuff today. Um, Sarah's going to give an OSHA update. I'm going to talk a little bit, and we'll talk a little bit about religious exemptions and the vaccine, about something that I think... Um, A lot of people don't understand about religious liberty law that I want to clear up based on a podcast conversation I had last week, and then we're going to talk about this book and this argument from Noah Feldman that essentially that um, the Constitution was broken and Sort of objectively pro slavery, Lincoln sort of broke the Constitution in the Civil War and then remade it. And the Constitution was remade in during the Civil War and in in the immediate post Civil War period with the Civil War Amendments. And I have some thoughts on this, both positive and negative. And I'm super eager to hear Sarah's thoughts. But before we get to that, so this is going to be a little bit of history and and. Uh, a little bit of discussion of the founding more than we get into uh, in a normal podcast. So I'm excited about it. But before we get going, Sarah, you've got OSHA updates, vaccine mandate updates.
2: Yes. So the last time we talked about this, the Fifth Circuit had issued a like sort of preliminary on the preliminary on the preliminary stay. And now we have like sort of the next set of that. A slightly more permanent stay, um, though with every indication that they will continue issuing stays all the way down as this goes. Now, this is a, a consolidated Fifth Circuit case with a whole bunch of folks who have all filed in the Fifth Circuit because it is seen as a friendly venue. So first things first, let's talk about what the Fifth Circuit said. And then I want to expand out to what's going to happen next, because this thing may not stay in the Fifth Circuit, as we have, of course, discussed before. So uh, Fifth Circuit panel, we have Judge Engelhart writing, joined by both Judges Jones and Duncan. So this is a unanimous opinion by the three-judge panel in the Fifth Circuit. And remember, David, you and I talked about the various ways that you could challenge this. And I started at the top of the funnel, if you will. And then said, however, a court would start from the bottom of this funnel because you want to get to sort of the (laughs) smallest issues first and then move up. Um, But I'm once again going to start from the top of the funnel, which is, does Congress have the power to do this under the U.S. Constitution and the Fifth Circuit? Now, mind you, this is in stay posture. So they're looking at likelihood of success on the merits. They're not actually doing the merits, um, which is very confusing because they are kind of doing the merits, but they don't do it. you know, in sort of the depth that they would. They're just looking like, you know, 51% would you win on this? And 51%, the Fifth Circuit says, yeah, this exceeds your Commerce Clause powers. Um, it was not and likely could not be under the Commerce Clause uh intended to authorize workplace safety, yada yada. Um, second, after the commerce clause, like does Congress have the power to do this? Um, Could Congress delegate this to OSHA? Non-delegation doctrine, right? There's certain things that are legislative functions that Congress has to keep for itself that it cannot give to an administrative agency. The Fifth Circuit said, also, 51%? No. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Non-delegation doctrine problem here. Then I said, did. Did. Congress delegate this to OSHA. This is major question doctrine, meaning, all right, the Constitution says that Congress can do it and Congress can delegate this to an administrative agency. But did they delegate it to an administrative agency? This is called major question doctrine, as in it's a, if it's a major question, uh, a big thing, Congress should have explicitly said that that's what it was doing. I know this will come as a shock to you, David. The Fifth Circuit said Major question doctrine no. problem as well, in fact, <laughs> um, Judge Duncan had basically a whole concurrence, whole meaning it was like two pages uh just on major question doctrine and this problem. by the way, there was a fun little Latin phrase <laughs> uh, called nositer a so- sois nobody can nobody speaks Latin, therefore i can't mispronounce it, but nevertheless, we will get comments on this um. A word is known by the company it keeps, meaning uh, that they're going to interpret the delegation from Congress in a more constrained manner, perhaps, than OSHA wants them to, Uh, the words in sort of their, the company they keep, right? The words next to it and all of that. So here, OSHA's attempt to shoehorn an airborne virus that is both widely present in society and thus, not particular to any workplace, and non life threatening to a vast majority of employees, into a neighboring phrase connoting toxicity and poisonousness is yet another transparent stretch. Um, so, this goes to whether OSHA is following its own uh, uh, delegation here. Um, basically, on every single section, the Fifth Circuit said, <laughs> Nah, dog. In fact, this was some this was some pretty real gnaw dog stuff going on here.
1: Comprehensive dog dogism, basically. Yeah.
2: So, and this gets to of course what um the OSHA uh, rule was, which we have talked about now a long time ago, back in September. Um Okay, so first, David, the Fifth had found that it was both over and under inclusive. What the vaccine mandate itself was over inclusive, meaning it includes, you know, two thirds of American workplaces, regardless of, um, you know, what's going on at those workplaces, whether there is someone with COVID at those workplaces, as opposed to, for instance, um, lead paint or something that is a toxicity, where it's like if you have lead paint present, you need to remove that lead paint right now. They can't do that with COVID. But they also said it's underinclusive. If this is a grave danger to the workplace, which we'll talk about later, then how come employees, uh, sorry, employers with 98 employees aren't covered by this? And OSHA said, basically, because this vaccine mandate would be too onerous for a small business. And they're like, well, that doesn't go to whether it's a grave danger. Therefore, both over and under-inclusive, they've got a problem with that. Next, they're looking at the actual statutory language of the uh, ETS. Uh, and it needs to address, quote, substances or agents determined to be toxic or physically harmful or, quote, new hazards. They find that COVID, again, 51%, likely doesn't fit into any of those categories. Not toxic, not physically harmful, not a new hazard, which is interesting.
1: Not physically harmful. Um, <laughs> interesting. So, what I, you, there's something that as you were talking about the funnel, which I think is a super, super helpful way of, of thinking about this, there's something that on the top of the funnel I want to address. And okay, that is then we'll this. get
2: back to our, our ETS standards. Okay, you address yeah. the top of the funnel. But
1: uh, yeah, so the top of the funnel, because I think there, For those people who've been listening faithfully to advisory opinions, and we know that you have been listeners, you're very familiar with this case called Jacobson versus Massachusetts, which is this 1905 case where the Supreme Court of the United States said, yep, you can mandate the smallpox vaccine. And so you might be saying, wait a minute, how could you say that Congress can't mandate a vaccine if... The Supreme Court said in 1905, the state can. Well, the state has the police power. So the state and the and Congress have different kinds of power. And one thing that's always important to remember, and this is something that became so important during the pandemic, as we were looking at all these pandemic regulations, is this, you look at state sovereignty, it's different from federal sovereignty. Think, think of the police power like this. The state has all of the power that a sovereign has except for, except for that power that is withheld from it by its constitution or by federal law. The federal government has no power except that which is granted to it by the constitution in the enumerated, under the enumerated powers doctrine. So unless you can look at something in the constitution that grants Congress the power to enact a particular law, Congress doesn't have that power in theory, and that's why, you know, Sarah was talking about the Commerce Clause, the logical place if you're talking about OSHA, the justification for OSHA, occupational, occupational safety and health, is the Commerce Clause, and does the Commerce Clause grant Congress the authority? That's a different question than the Jacobson versus Massachusetts question, which is, does a state which, is, which possesses the police power have the ability to order a vaccine mandate. Okay, that was my
2: miniature pause. So the Fifth Circuit takes that on really directly, in fact, citing Jacobson v. Massachusetts. And it says, the mandate, however, commandeers U.S. employers to compel millions of employees to receive a COVID-19 vaccine or bear the burden of weekly testing. The Commerce Clause power may be expansive, but it does not grant Congress the power to regulate non-economic inactivity traditionally within the state's police powers. Citing? That's right. NFIB versus Sibelius, the Obamacare uh, mandate opinion by Chief Justice Roberts. Now, remember, he ends up justifying that under the taxing power. But the whole first part of the opinion is how it is not under the Commerce Clause power. And they quote uh, the Chief Justice, people for reasons of their own often fail to do things that would be good for them or good for society those failures joined with the similar failures of others can readily have a substantial effect on interstate commerce. Under the government's logic, that authorizes Congress to use its Commerce Clause power to compel citizens to act as the government would have them act. Um, And then goes on to say the federal government has no such authority, no police power, Indeed, the courts have always rejected readings of the Commerce Clause that would permit Congress to exercise a police power. Uh, So that is sort of the ballgame on that top of the funnel. Now we'll go back to the mandate itself, We're now we've left the funnel and how Congress gets this over to OSHA. We're now to the language of the mandate itself and whether that is lawful under OSHA's ETS powers. As I said, the Fifth Circuit said, not a toxic or physically harmful substance, um, not a new hazard. So number two, show that workers are exposed to such substantive substances, agents, or new hazards in the workplace. Three, show that said exposure places workers in grave danger. And four, be necessary to alleviate employees' exposure two gravely dangerous hazards in the workplace. Uh, And, of course, we've gone over the numbers on this, right? Of the seven OSHA ETSs, uh, what, five were challenged? No, seven, sorry, of the nine, seven were challenged and five lost. So OSHA does not have a winning record on these ETSs, uh, the Fifth Circuit. As we have noted in the past, the precision of this standard makes it a difficult one to meet. So... Uh, right, an airborne virus is not a substance or agent. And so that's where the physically harmful comes in, David. It has to be a substance or agent that's physically harmful. Um, and it's widely present in society, as I said, non-life-threatening to a majority of employees, um, either because it just won't be or they're already vaccinated, you know, with 78% of adults. um. Any argument OSHA may make that COVID-19 is a new hazard would directly contradict OSHA's prior representation to the DC circuit that there can be no dispute that COVID-19 is a recognized hazard. Wah, wah, wah with your previous (laughs) arguments. I don't know that those two are as, um, orthogonal to one another as the fifth circuit makes it out. Something can both be recognized and new in my opinion, but I do see the, as this goes on, at what point is COVID-19 no longer a new hazard?
1: Yeah, you know, my issue with the OSHA regulation is top and middle funnel. So the top funnel, the commerce clause aspect of this, that is something that I'm very, I'm deeply skeptical of the Commerce Clause reaching this far. But I've been deeply skeptical about how far the Commerce Clause reaches into OSHA for a long time. Like the the OSHA, OSHA regulations are extraordinarily intricate and intrusive and complicated and um, universal. <laughs> and they have been for a really long time. and i'm I've long thought that the Commerce Clause has been stretched beyond recognition. so i've i'm I'm very concerned about the Commerce Clause aspect of this. And then you go to middle funnel, middle funnel where, well, wait a minute, what about the delegation here? What about the Administrative Procedure Act? How much can you actually do without notice and comment rulemaking? I really have a problem with the amount of administrative law that's being promulgated without notice and comment through memoranda, through emergency rules and regulations, Uh, incredibly intrusive and incredibly um, complex regulations that are and consequential regulations and and changes of law that are not going through normal process. And this has been something that's been going on for years now. So that sort of middle funnel. Uh so those both the top and middle funnel for me on this have long been of concern. But that that top funnel with OSHA in general has but long been a concern for me. So uh, I'm I've I've always for ever since I was a young lad in law school, I was looking at Commerce Clause jurisprudence and saying, come again? It's that broad? Really? So this will be interesting as it goes up, Sarah. This will be very interesting.
2: OSHA has one other problem in that it has previously said that it doesn't have the power to do vaccine mandates. And the Fifth Circuit cites all of their letters back to them, including a 1989 one Health in general is an intensely personal matter. OSHA prefers to encourage rather than to try to force by government coercion employee cooperation in a vaccine program. And then even in May of 2020, acknowledges that, quote, it would not be necessary for OSHA to issue an ETS to protect workers from infectious diseases because OSHA lacks evidence to conclude that all infectious diseases to which employees may be exposed at a workplace constitute a, quote, grave danger for which an ets is an appropriate remedy and they're like look you can depart from a prior policy but you can't just do it basically without explanation sub silencio. and that is sort of the definition of arbitrary and capricious even if they had followed notice and comment rulemaking by the way which they didn't hear this is under the emergency standards um so the fifth Circuit basically on every single category of this (laughs) mandate, um, naw dogging it. Now, David, of course, the Fifth Circuit is not the last word on this. As we discussed, uh, and I wanted to actually get into some of the history here, this will go through a multi-circuit panel. And let's go back to why that exists, because this can seem very silly but basically pre 1988 when you would have something like this it was just a race to the courthouse whoever got in first won the race to the uh to the courthouse and so we're trying to prevent that because that has all sorts of not great uh things that you know result from it which is you're sort of rewarding quickness and sloppiness it really becomes a true race can you get there 4 minutes after oh nope You know, you only got there six minutes after even though you have better standing, a better case, better lawyers, whatever else. And so in 1988, Congress created the multi-circuit petition statute. Although it creates a bit of a different problem, Uh, within 10 days after issuance of the order of the agency, basically everyone can file And then if there's (laughs) two courts of appeals involved, the agency must notify the judicial panel on multi-district litigation. The panel will then, by means of random selection, designate one court of appeals from among the courts of appeals in which petitions for review have been filed and received in the 10-day period to hear cases. So David, uh, two episodes ago or so, I dogged a little on the RNC's case because they filed in the D.C. Circuit. The D.C. Circuit, not as friendly if you're against the mandate as, for instance, the Fifth Circuit or the Eleventh Circuit, maybe. Probably also the Sixth Circuit at this point. Really, the D.C. Circuit's in sort of your bottom four circuits that you want to file in. And that a whole bunch of these other lawyers in these other cases were very annoyed with the RNC and thought they had made a strategic blunder filing in the D.C. Circuit. Now, in fairness, they also just don't think the RNC is a good plaintiff. It's overly political, makes it look like a fundraising operation instead of a genuine concern with the mandate. But set that aside because their loudest complaint was, how dare you ruin our strategy to get into the 5th or 11th Circuit by filing (laughs) in the D.C. Circuit? So what happens in the days that follow? Exactly what was predicted by the RNC's lawyers, which is? There were then cases filed by so-called friendlies, friendly to the vaccine mandate, uh, the AFL-CIO, for instance, in uh, both the D.C. Circuit and the Ninth Circuit, among others. And what's interesting about this, if you're wondering, well, wait, if they are not a party adverse to the vaccine mandate, how did they do that? Uh, Well, first, they could have just said, oh, the vaccine mandate doesn't go far enough. It should cover everyone or there shouldn't be a a testing thing. Uh, They could have done that, but they didn't. Instead, what this actually allows is simply for you to file and say, me too. That's it. You don't have to actually explain why you're there at all. And that's, in fact, what the (laughs) Ninth Circuit petition, like it didn't say anything. And that puts in the Ninth Circuit and even if the RNC case didn't exist, the DC Circuit into that multi-district petition that the judicial panel on multi-district litigation now will consider. Um, And now it's all about what does random mean? And uh, well, we're about to find out. Now, before they announce which circuit court will have it, that's where the Fifth Circuit or any other circuit can act as if they are that, that circuit that has it because of sort of the emergency nature of it, et cetera, et cetera. So the Fifth Circuit Doing what the fifth circuit does, but in a few days here we're going to find out which circuit will actually have these for good.
1: And so on the on the random selection, is there a bowl with ping pong balls in it with circuit numbers? and are you blindfolded and you reach in? Is there like a dice with a circuit number on it and you roll the dice? How is the random? Does anyone know is this, is this, <laughs> is this specified?
2: No, and indeed, Josh Blackman um, and the Reason website wrote up his whole thing on it. And um, yeah, it could be that the Chief Justice, you know, pulls a ping pong out of a ball, I mean, out of a bowl. Who knows? Uh, so 28 USC 2112A3 is what says it will be oh, of random. Course, yes, yes. yes I, I mean, we've memorized that. Uh, <laughs> The clerk of the panel shall randomly select a circuit court of appeals from a drum containing an entry for each circuit, wherein a constituent petition for review is pending. Multiple petitions for review pending in a single circuit shall be allotted only a single entry in the drum. A designated deputy, other than the random selector, shall witness the random selection. No joke. It's ping pong balls in a drum, y'all.
1: It's amazing. That's fantastic. Well, Sarah, that is so that's where we are on the OSHA vaccine mandate. Now, there were 10 states that filed a lawsuit um, this past week on the CMS mandate, which is a different mandate, which is that CMS is the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And it, this is the healthcare worker vaccine mandate that is tied to Medicare, Medicaid funding. And that's a different beast in and of itself and so that one has i think much more is str- much stronger than the osha mandate if you're tying it directly to funding of medicare medicaid you're going to have more capability there i think to a- attach a condition to that funding um but we'll be keeping an eye on that as well um so one more thing before we leave vaccines So, this week, or was it, gosh, no, last week, because this is Monday, last week, my days are blurring together, Sarah. Last week, I did an interview, a podcast with the uh, editor of Mediite, the the editor in chief of Mediite. And it was about vaccines and lots of different topics. And out of that, he asked me about religious exemptions to vaccines. And we actually had a pretty helpful conversation about it uh, that I think would be, that I wanted to relay some of what was said to this audience cuz he was asking me about the sort of flood of religious exemption requests. And I said something that kind of one half of it got picked up in in on Twitter and the other half did not. So I get to do all of it. Here was the half that got sort of picked up on Twitter is that I was saying that there is not a significant strain of American religion whether it is the Catholic Church or the Southern Baptist Convention or the Episcopal Church, or the Presbyterian Church I'm a part of, that has in place a formal doctrine prohibiting or um, re-asking its parishioners and its members and its congregants not to take the vaccine. There is not a traditional anti-vaccine theology, either of this vaccine or other vaccines that exist in mainstream American Christianity. It's just not there. And in fact, Prior to the, the COVID vaccine, even, you know conservative evangelicals were often quite dismissive of the anti-vax movement that they were seeing and, and sort of ascribing to the far, far left. So there has not been a traditional religious justification founded in the theology and, and practice of major American strands of Christianity that justifies a va- vaccine exemption. That was part one. And there's like, David French says there's no religious basis for the vaccine mandate. Okay. But there's a lot of Christians of all strands who are now objecting to the COVID-19 vaccine, even though their church, they, their church does not provide them for the basis for the objection. Now they might say, well, this verse or that verse or et cetera. But what they're doing is essentially saying, My own interpretation of our religious beliefs leads me to object to the vaccine quite sincerely. And one of the points that I wanted to make in that was when you're talking about, there's two arguments. If you're you're talking about theology, like you and another person from your church are talking about religion and the vaccine, you might be correct in saying, our church does not prohibit you from taking the vaccine but a court doesn't care. The court isn't saying, well, you're the good Baptist and you're the bad Baptist, or you're the good Catholic and you're the bad Catholic, or we're not going to grant you the protection of the free exercise clause because your church, you're defying your church. That is not what they do. That is What they essentially do is say, wait, is this a sincerely held religious belief And they don't question the validity of your reasoning, of your religious reasoning. And you wouldn't want the court to do that anyway. Is it the court's job to determine who's a good Catholic, who's a bad Catholic? No. A good Baptist, a bad Baptist? No. So they're just going to ask, is this a sincerely held religious belief? They're going to take a light touch on that. And then is this a a substantial burden on that? But that doesn't end it then you get into the actual test that's going to be applied. Is there a compelling governmental interest? Is this least restrictive means, et cetera, et cetera? So one thing that I wanted to clear up is you can say at the same time this. The Presbyterian Church of America, my church, does not, as a matter of formal teaching, prohibit you from taking the COVID-19 vaccine. And that doesn't matter one bit in federal court if you're a Presbyterian saying my religious beliefs say that I shouldn't take the COVID-19 vaccine. So I wanted to clear that up because there's a difference between a religious argument and a legal argument, and the legal argument is not designed to settle the religious argument. Is that clear as mud?
2: Yeah, yeah. But so courts obviously do not look at whether your sincerely held religious belief fits in with any other particular religious tradition as long as it's sincerely held but does consistency of the religious, of the stated religious belief matter? So for instance, the COVID vaccine religious objection that I've heard most commonly is that it was developed from stem cells. Now there's plenty of fact checks out there, so I'm not going to do the full history of that, um, except like this does sort of come from uh, stem cell lines that were originally derived from fetal tissue back in the 70s and 80s have been immortalized and retained and they are used. And yes, that it appears was part of the COVID vaccine um, uh, process, but it is also was also part of the process for Tylenol. So will the court ask, okay, if that is your objection to the COVID uh, vaccine, have you ever taken Tylenol? Well, so does consistency factor into whether it is sincerely held?
1: You know, the, the inquiry into whether it's sincerely held is really, as I said, light. <laughs> so to sit there and say, okay, uh, and it's not just Tylenol, it's a bunch of medications. Oh, tons. And it's a, t- yeah, just a ton, of very commonly used medications. I mean, there, there was, you know, there's been lists flying around that say, oh, so you must not be taking. And the answer to that is in court, if I'm their attorney, if I'm wearing the attorney hat, is your honor, in all honesty... My client didn't know until this litigation that these cell lines were used for Tylenol, and they're going to react accordingly. And so that there's a very easy sort of way around this. And so what you're, it's going to be very, 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 very rare that you would see a court say, I this is just not sincere, this is not a sincerely held religious belief. This is not, you would almost have to have a document saying, I'm going to make up a fake religious claim as sort of a, an incomplete mission against interest because <laughs> the free exercise clause protects, you can be a church of one, you know,
2: Absolutely,
1: yeah. I, I, you can be a church of one. You, you can be not even a believer. It protects the free exercise clause protects atheism every much, every bit as much as it protects Christianity. And so this is one of the aspects of our constitutional system that you can say, you know, I know that you could walk in as a Catholic and, and have, and I'm just making this up completely. The Pope has written a letter that says, David French, you're a bad Catholic if you refuse. It doesn't matter. You could say, Your Honor, I'm a dissenting Catholic. And the court is going to say, I'm out of that. I'm not a part of that argument. And so, yeah, that that's why... A lot of people don't understand. It's not the role of the court to adjudicate the religious dispute. What it adjudicates is this: is the uh, clash between your religious belief and the state legal requirements. That's what it adjudicates. Um, and the sincerely held religious belief prong is all is so easy to pass. It's almost not entirely, but almost functionally non-existent.
2: Well, at least until Ramirez v. comes down, because there was a lot of discussion in that death penalty case last week <laughs> about. Now, the whole point, I think, from the conservative wing of the court um, was we don't want to have courts looking into what is sincerely held religious belief by uh, a defendant. However, they were lying, you know, laying out how would we determine whether a religious belief was sincerely held by someone pending execution. So, Yes. And I think the consistency issue is really interesting, as you said, just because you can always say, I'll be consistent from now on. And that's enough.
1: Right. Yep. Yep. I'll find a different blood pressure medication. I'll use a different pain relief. Yeah. You can absolutely just say that. And what's the court going to do then? Check up on you in six months? I mean, that's not how it works.
2: With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: Shall we talk broken constitutions?
2: Yes, I'm very excited about this. We've been holding this for a couple of weeks to get through the Supreme Court arguments and we're here. Yay.
1: Yeah. So this is really interesting. So Noah Feldman um, has written a book uh, that is that it's titled The Broke Constitution. So in essence, what uh, Feldman is contending and it's a it's book length. So forgive me, Professor Feldman, if this is the inappropriate four-sentence summary, is that the slavery prior to, I mean, that the Constitution prior to 1861, is it too much to say that he argues was essentially and functionally pro-slavery? Um, and not just sort of pro-slavery, but also created a, a, a was silent on disillusion. And so that in many ways, when the Confederacy um, seceded, And when the states of the Confederacy seceded, they were properly interpreting sort of their understanding of the federal constitution at the time, and that Lincoln's aggressive military action combined with a lot of the other things that he did, such as the Emancipation Proclamation, et cetera, essentially broke apart the contemporary understanding of the constitution. To reconstitute the constitution, you had to have the Civil War Amendments, You had to kind of rethink fundamentally the relationship of the Constitution to the states. And it's a fascinating argument. Um, Sean Willens, a Princeton professor, reviewed his book in The New York Times and essentially says, you know, look, I mean, what Feldman is doing is he's kind of taking the Confederate constitutional argument and saying the Confederate constitutional argument was the correct constitutional interpretation at the time, which is interesting and then it took this, you know, and, and then also sort of takes that um, narrative that exists within the South of Lincoln as the oppressor, Lincoln as the extra constitutional sort of warlord, and adopts that as well to say, essentially what Lincoln did was took took a flawed constitution, shattered it through military and executive action, and then that had to be put back together again Immediately after the Civil War, in a fundamentally different way, is that a fair description? Do you think, Sarah?
2: I do. Yeah, I do think it's fair.
1: Okay. So, what's your? I'm I'm eager to hear. I have I have thoughts, as you might imagine, uh, but I'm very eager to hear yours.
2: So, I attended a one-week, you know, fellowship program where this was basically the thesis. Uh, setting aside some of the Lincoln part, actually, which I find really interesting and highly persuasive, the thesis being the original constitution has been replaced post civil war, that the 14th amendment transformed that so that when we think about our constitutional order, anything basically, we should be going back to you know 1867, not 1770, well, really 1787, but um, and that. You almost go straight from the Declaration of Independence and draw that direct line to the 14th Amendment and skip over what happens in between because it's this failed experiment that includes slavery. So you go straight from all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights to the 14th Amendment's change in power between the federal government and the state governments and erase constitution, uh, sorry, slavery from the Constitution. Um, now, some things that I find really interesting about this: one, it's a very hopeful reading of American history, and I like that. So, just to read mm. the end, you of, mean the
1: Feldman reading?
2: I think all, yeah, the the reading that the Fourteenth Amendment is where you start with the current American constitutional system. Um, you know, whether you want to draw that direct line from the Declaration of Independence or not. I mean, I think Feldman does actually, but um, that the experiment of the initial U.S. Constitution with slavery was failed and was ended. As he ends his uh, op-ed that he wrote in the New York Times about this, persistent inequality still afflicts the United States, including inequality before the law of the kind the moral constitution prohibits. The reality is that Lincoln's moral constitution, like all constitutions, is not an endpoint, but a vow of continuing effort. Through that constitution, we define our national project and strive to achieve it, even if we never fully succeed. If I had a um, a constitutional theory, it would be summed up in that paragraph pretty well, uh, because I I do think that's a very... Hopeful, ongoing experiment way of seeing United States history. Uh, Some other points, though. The Lincoln as authoritarian usurper, I don't think is wrong. There's no question that Lincoln violated the uh, 1787 Constitution repeatedly, flagrantly. And he did so saying, This is an emergency. This has to be done to preserve the Union. It is the only choice. All things, by the way, that actual dictators and authoritarians say. (laughs) Lincoln happened to be right in history's eyes. But I would be deeply concerned if I were living through that era um, that that wasn't the case, you know, that sort of emergency powers are to be disfavored in any self-government. Um, and so I think that there is that side that we have to be very grateful that it was Abraham Lincoln who exercised this power. It would be terrifying in anyone else.
1: That that sound you heard as you were talking about Lincoln in that way was the keyboards clicking of our commenters lighting up the discussion of the American Civil War. But look, I, here, so there's two things. One is, let me me go Civil War related first. And this is going to get kind of nerdy. This is going to get nerdy on law of armed conflict. And so bear with me for a second. Okay. So Lincoln had this interesting dilemma, which was this. The Confederacy, he refused to recognize as a belligerent power. In other words, by recognizing the Confederacy as a belligerent power, the way you would recognize, say, if the United States was at war with France or with uh, with Great Britain. To recognize the Confederacy in that way was to recognize the Confederacy, right?
2: And also to say that there was a valid dissolution of the ratification of the Constitution, which the Constitution does not provide for dissolution. Therefore, if you recognize them, it's already been dissolved.
1: Right. So on the one hand, you couldn't formally recognize the Confederacy as a belligerent power in the same way that you would do this because for all the reasons you just said, you're not recognizing, you don't, it doesn't, the Confederacy in the mind of Abraham Lincoln, is not an entity that exists. This is not an entity that exists. So at the same time, however, in many ways, the war functionally was conducted as if the Confederacy was a belligerent power. So in other words, The way in which the Union and the Confederacy fought each other was very much in keeping with the way, say, Britain and France would have fought each other. The rules, the formalities, the customs, not entirely historians who are listening to this AO podcast, not entirely, but in many functional ways, that was the case. So, For example, when you're looking at the Emancipation Proclamation, the Emancipation Proclamation was very much in keeping with the way that a belligerent power would commandeer the laws of the uh of another power in in the course of an occupation, of a military occupation. We're running the place now. Our word is law. And that would be very consistent with if France and you know, uh Britain invaded Normandy and was running Normandy and they say our word is law at this point. And so that's what Uh, say, for example, in the Emancipation Proclamation, essentially what you're doing is you're saying the function of it was we have occupied the territory of an opposing power and we are now imposing our law on this opposing power, which, as a matter of law, there was no occupation going on at all. This was the states, say, Tennessee or Alabama or Mississippi were never outside of the Constitution, and their constitutional rights were never forfeit because they never left, but they did leave. (laughs) And so that was part of what was happening. And so you had this sort of legal fiction that was, they've never left, the Constitution still applies, et cetera, that was substituted for a reality on the ground of, this is a hostile belligerent power, I'm going to treat it that way in fact. not If not in 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 the way, not, not verbally, not rhetorically, but in fact, we're going to treat it that way. And that's responsible for, you know, one of the reasons why you actually saw the Confederacy, you know, for example, militarily occupied. You had the states readmitted to the Union. How could they be readmitted if they never left? You know, so you had a lot of this going on that was a product of the ambiguity of, A, we're not going to recognize the Confederacy but B, as a matter of fact, there's a giant army that we're fighting represented that is the, the military arm of a government that we are fighting. And so a lot of what you saw in the Civil War was the tension between these two concepts playing itself out in real time. So that's that's number one. Number two, the one thing that I would say on the Constitution as originally formed, you know, as originally created. And a lot of people say the original Constitution was pro slavery. And other people say they counter, no, it was permissive of slavery, and that's a separate thing. I, I kind of tend to think that's a little bit more semantics, but I will say this I will say that the Constitution, by being permiss- permissive of slavery, while still articulating, even though the Bill of Rights only applied to the, to the federal government initially and not the states, by being permissive of slavery, but at the same time articulating a Bill of Rights, was morally intentioned with itself. It wasn't explicitly intention with itself because the Bill of Rights, again, only constrained the states. It was morally intentioned with itself, just in the same way that slavery was morally intentioned with uh the declaration of independence and that those two things the declaration of independence and the bill of rights i think over time could not over time coexist with slavery it just couldn't there was too much of a moral contradiction between those two things so that's my that's my uh brief divergence
2: it seems to me that the the way to read the original constitution's view on slavery is neither advocating for nor permissive of, it was a compromise. The same as so many other compromises that were made to include both small states and big states and states of different regions and states of different economic power to all agree to a single constitution and to um, join into a union. And that was one of many compromises. It was an immoral compromise. But that makes it, Um, complicated in the sense that, yes, then some people uh, were pro-slavery who joined in that compromise. Some people were permissive of slavery who joined in that compromise. So it is actually both. That's what a compromise is. And to see the Constitution as anything else to me is just overly simplistic um, and not understanding how group projects work. So.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Going all the way back to like second grade collages.
2: That's right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, were you permissive of the color blue in your collage advocating for the color blue? No, it was a compromise. That's what a group project (laughs) is in this case, an immoral compromise. Uh, but I find it a really interesting, uh, argument that Feldman's making the book again is called the broken constitution, Lincoln slavery and the refounding of America, because in so much of our constitutional law, we do treat the 14th amendment as the restart button of the U.S. Constitution when we look at um, you know original meaning, what was intended. I mean, so much now. The 14th Amendment is in some ways bigger than the Commerce Clause in terms of how often we're going back to it to look at due process, substantive due process, um, all, all of the amendments that are held against the states, the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, the Fourth, the Fifth, all of them. That runs through the 14th Amendment because we remade the U.S. Constitution where the states were no longer entities unto themselves getting to run their populations as they saw fit. They were now bound by the same guarantees of freedoms, liberties, and duties that the federal government had guaranteed to its citizens. And, so, um, and Lincoln's role in that is fascinating. So it's a really interesting... Feldman uh, thing he's got out there.
1: Yeah, you know, and I think the the average person, the average constitutionally informed person has trouble grasping that, wait a minute, it's only been a century or so since if my, that where I would be, my local government could totally censor me. (laughs) My state government could completely violate my free exercise rights. It could completely violate my free speech rights. Wait, what? Because we're now so conditioned after the 14th Amendment to look at all forms of American government as constrained by the Bill of Rights that it seems odd to us. And so when you go back to, for example, one of the greatest speeches, and I refer to this all the time, one of the greatest speeches um, in American history is Frederick Frederick Douglass's Uh, A plea for free speech in Boston, and you think, wait a minute. Unless you're familiar with this constitutional history, why is he pleading for free speech? Don't we have a first? Didn't we have a First Amendment then? Um, Yeah, but it didn't restrain Boston. It didn't restrain Massachusetts. It didn't restrain any other of these states in the in the you know uh, slave South, the slave states in the South, and so. The 14th Amendment really was a revolution, a constitutional revolution on a scale that it's really tough for us to comprehend because we have been living with it, and we don't have a memory of anything other than this.
2: And arguably, and this is where we still argue over the meaning of the 14th Amendment, was the 14th Amendment basically meant to ratify the Declaration of Independence, or was its uh, purview far more modest and narrow? And that's an ongoing debate that we still have. And um, conservatives, and I'm using conservatives here with a small C, of course, conservatives often want a more narrow reading of anything, you know, a more modest judicial role that, um, and, and read the 14th Amendment that way. That's sort of the fight over substantive due process. But at the same time, there is something deeply conservative about saying that the 14th Amendment brought into the Constitution the Declaration of Independence and the problem, of course, with that argument is that it didn't say so. And it's sort of like, <laughs> it's major question True. doctrine in a, an amendment. If you meant to have something so massive and the 14th Amendment carries so much water, why doesn't it say that at all? And there's historical arguments for and against that and everything else, and that, that's the debate we're still having today. But there's, no one's questioning that the 14th Amendment remade the relationship between the federal government and the states and the states and the people.
1: Well, and one thing about the 14th amendment is the language on its face is super, is a combination of very broad and not very explicit. So, if you're a textualist and you're reading an originalist and you're reading the 14th amendment, man, that's some broad and ex, that's a broad language there. That is a, there's a lot of play in those joints. But also the historical context says, we're trying to do something. We're trying to recreate, we're, we're recreating this nation in essence. <laughs> um, this is, you know, a new birth of freedom in essence. And so I think there's a lot of historical support for the idea that that broad language should be, that language that, that was as quite broad should be interpreted in a quite broad fashion and has been interpreted in a quite broad fashion.
2: Bearing in mind, of course, that this was the opportunity that the union had, because in order to rejoin the union, again, with all the complications that that raises in terms of weight, but they weren't out of the union, uh, they had to ratify the 14th Amendment. And so it was this opportunity for big, bold stuff.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we're a little short on time. So can I use a couple of minutes with a book recommendation? Sure. All right. So this is not a brand new book. Um, one thing I do every now and then when I'm between books is I will go to the Amazon military history bestsellers list and just see what's on there that I haven't read yet. And so there was this book called A World Undone, The Story of the Great War, 1914 to 1918 by G.J. Meyer. And I think it was written in like 06. And I was a little mad at myself because I hadn't read it before. Yeah, it was, came out in May 30th, 2006. And I thought I vacuumed up every new one volume history of world war 1 and i hadn't read this one yet and it was like number 2 on amazon right now in 2021 and i so highly recommend this book i so highly recommend this book for two reasons one if you are interested in the first world war and you should be because there's a lot of there's a lot of good arguments that that world war 1 is the war that sort of broke the world in a lot of ways Um, you should be interested in it just on its own terms. But second, the first part of the book is probably the most compelling explanation for how it started that I've ever read and how much staggering incompetence there was in confusion and bad mistakes and misreading of signals and it it's really absolutely heartbreaking when you know what follows to read this this account and i'm just you know i've this been beating this drum for a long time that we often in our view of what's happening in the world today right now in our view of history we attribute to plan and and um intention what is often actually the product of accident <laughs> And incompetence. And my goodness, the start of World War One is an example of that. So it's called A World Undone by GJ Meyer. Um, it's written in oh six, but I highly recommend. Super readable. You won't regret it.
2: And on Thursday, we're gonna dive into the insular cases. So if you've ever wondered what the insular cases are, that's gonna be our first question with a special guest. And David, and we I have know one more. Everyone- Oh, yeah. We have one more big thing to talk about. And what is that? The music.
1: Yes. Okay. Go, Sarah.
2: So many of you did not like the change in our introductory music that was made now uh, many months ago. There was a revolt against producer Caleb. Producer Caleb has informed us (laughs) that the time has come again. So for those members of the dispatch, hop into the comments section on advisory opinions on the Dispatch website and tell us, have you grown to love the new music? Or do you still hate both the music and producer Caleb? Because he is in (laughs) music shopping mode.
1: Or if you've not subscribed to the Dispatch, and I know there are many of you who listen who've not yet subscribed to the Dispatch, subscribe now so that we can afford my dream music the opening guitar riff of Sweet Child O' Mine.
2: Right. We're not going to use the money for that, folks. (laughs) Just, we're not going to. Uh, But we would, but if you want to weigh in, you can become a member just this month for the purpose of weighing in on the AO theme music for the flagship (laughs) podcast. This is pretty important stuff. Uh, And of course, regardless, we appreciate all of you and appreciate you listening. Bad music or not.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, And so we will be back and talking to you on Thursday. And as always, please go rate us on Apple Podcasts. Please go subscribe on Apple Podcasts and get ready to learn more than you ever wanted to know about the insular cases. And I'm going to be learning right there along with you. So we will talk to you again on Thursday.